Monday marks the beginning of another week of public hearings in the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. But before we get to the details of those upcoming hearings, let's catch up on the news developments you may have missed. Midday Friday, Trump associate Roger Stone was convicted of witness tampering and lying to Congress. Testimony and evidence at Stone's trial appeared to cast doubt on some written replies from Trump to former special prosecutor Robert Mueller, specifically on Trump's answers about his own knowledge of his 2016 campaign's attempt to learn more about hacked Democratic emails by WikiLeaks. This led counsel for the House of Representatives to suggest Trump may have lied to Mueller. Counsel did so in arguments for a case where Congress is requesting that secret grand jury evidence from the Mueller report be released urgently for the House's impeachment inquiry. Also Friday, State Department official David Holmes confirmed what top diplomat in Ukraine, Bill Taylor, had testified to publicly earlier in the week, that Holmes overheard a call between EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland and President Trump on July 26th. Sondland, in his earlier testimony, had failed to mention the call in which Trump asked about Ukrainian investigations. Trump said Monday that he'll strongly consider taking up an offer by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to testify in writing as part of the impeachment inquiry. Congressional Democrats reacted to Trump's statement that he'll consider testifying with skepticism and calls for more cooperation from the White House. That's the news that's emerged over the past few days. And as we look ahead to a busy week in Washington, there's likely to be quite a bit more news to come. This week in the inquiry has eight people scheduled to testify publicly across five hearings in fewer than three full days. Tuesday, we'll hear from Pence aide Jennifer Williams and National Security Council expert Alexander Vindman in the morning. And then special envoy to Ukraine Kurt Volker and former National Security Council Russia expert Timothy Morrison in the afternoon. Wednesday, the people testifying are Pentagon official for Ukraine and Russia, Laura Cooper, State Department official David Hale, and European Union ambassador Gordon Sondland. And finally, on Thursday, appearing solo in her hearing, former National Security Council Russia advisor Fiona Hill will face the panel of lawmakers. That's a lot of hours of hearings. So what should you watch for? Which hearings matter most? Which are likely to offer new insight? And what happens once these public hearings are over? We'll take you through a look ahead, a guide to this week on The Hill. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. I asked my colleague, senior political reporter Aaron Blake, to take me through the ins and outs of what to expect in the inquiry this week. I suggested we start with Tuesday. At 9 a.m. on Tuesday, we will be hearing from Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and Jennifer Williams, who is an aide to Vice President Pence. Uh, They will hold that hearing much like we saw last week, but then they will have a second hearing in the afternoon, which will be at 2.30 approximately, depending on how the first one pans out. At 2.30, we're going to see Kurt Volker, the former special envoy to Ukraine, sitting next to Timothy Morrison, who is a top National Security Council aide. The idea is to have more witnesses. They're going to have them together, but they're not going to have four people sitting at one table and try to do a hearing that way, which could get pretty messy. Right. So two hearings, two people each. Let's talk about in more detail about who some of these people are and why they're testifying. First up is Jennifer Williams. She works as a national security aide to Vice President Mike Pence. Why is she there? Why is she testifying? 
Well, two reasons. One is that she provides a little bit of a window into what Vice President Pence knew and when. He, of course, was you know, scheduled to attend the inauguration of President Zelensky in Ukraine. But according to some witnesses, the president decided to hold him back from going there and instead sent Energy Secretary Rick Perry. So that's a key event for Jennifer Williams. The other one is that she apparently, uh, according to our reporting, has testified that the holding of the military aid to Ukraine dated back as far as early July, July 3rd. And her testimony seems to track with some other witnesses. So that'll be another key thing she'll be testifying to. Is she expected to shed light on Mike Pence's specific role in U.S.-Ukrainian relations, him as the focus? You know, there have been questions about just how involved Vice President Pence was going back a while. We don't know how much she's going to shed light on that necessarily. She certainly is an aide to him, but she is also technically a State Department employee. She is one of these people who, like Alexander Vindman, she serves the president, the vice president, but they don't necessarily, they're not political appointees. They're not staffers that were necessarily hired. They're basically people who are detailed to to the president and to the vice president. So they have kind of a unique window here in that they're not necessarily loyalists, but they have a, a real window into certain things that happened, uh, as we've seen with Vindman and now with Jennifer Williams. Speaking of Williams as a loyalist, Trump tweeted about her over the weekend. He said, tell Jennifer Williams, whoever that is, to read both transcripts of the presidential calls and see the just released statement from Ukraine. Then she should meet with the other never Trumpers who I don't know and mostly never even heard of and work out a better presidential attack. So what is Trump responding to with this tweet? Why is he targeting Williams right now? You know, it's not clear exactly what he's seen in her testimony that is that is harmful to him. Uh, if anything, uh, this could simply be a little bit of a, a warning shot, which the president has certainly shown a willingness to to send in the past with some of these witnesses. But it's telling that maybe she's somebody who he's focused on here in a way he's not focused on others. But if you look at this list of uh, witnesses that we're going to see this week, Some of them haven't necessarily broken with the president completely, talking about Kurt Volker, talking about Gordon Sondland, even as they've disclosed things that aren't helpful. I would I would include Tim Morrison in this, even as they've disclosed things that aren't helpful to the president. They haven't necessarily gone all the way. They've kept things in somewhat of a Trump friendly light. They've said, well, I don't know that he knew all the stuff was going on at the time. So maybe this is an effort to maybe get her to adjust her testimony slightly in a more Trump friendly direction like we've seen with some of these other witnesses. All right. So let's move on to another witness, Alexander Vindman, a Europe expert on Trump's National Security Council. The key takeaway about Vindman seems to me that he was actually listening in on the July 25th phone call between Trump and Zelensky. So he's a firsthand witness to the calling question. Yes, he, along with Jennifer Williams, in fact, they were both on that call. Alexander Vindman's response to that call was particularly notable. He went to his superiors. He brought this to the attention of a National Security Council lawyer. He seemed to be among the most concerned about this in real time, and he documented that by going to certain people. He's also important because he was in that July 10th meeting in which John Bolton, National Security Advisor, basically shut down a meeting with the Ukrainians because Gordon Sondland was going into details about investigations and how they should be delivered if Ukraine wants these other things in exchange. So he can provide uh, firsthand testimony to both of those things, the July 25th call and also that July 10th meeting, which has become increasingly important to this impeachment inquiry. 
So you say that Vinman raised some alarms after he heard the July 25th phone call. Are there any more specifics about what he was alarmed by, or did he add any insight in his testimony as to what he he heard? Well, Alexander Vindman, like several of these witnesses, but not all of them, thought that it was pretty clear what the president was trying to do, which was to apply pressure to have Ukraine investigate things that would impact American politics, not things that were necessarily related to official goals of U.S. foreign policy, but things that were actually in the president's personal interests. Other witnesses haven't been willing to go that far. We've seen Volcker, we've seen Sondland, and even Tim Morrison, who said that he was also on this call with Jennifer Williams and with Alexander Vindman. Tim Morrison said in his testimony that he did not, his previous testimony, that he did not believe that there was anything illegal on that call, which illegal is a pretty high bar. He still raised concerns about it, but he said his concerns were mostly having to do with the idea that this could create problems uh, if people learned about the contents of the call um, for U.S. foreign policy and not for anything actually improper. All right. Let's move on then to Tuesday afternoon. We'll hear from, as you said, Special Envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, and former Senior Director for Russia Affairs at the National Security Council, Tim Morrison. I imagine that the now famous text messages that Kurt Volker submitted for his private testimony will come up prominently in this Tuesday hearing. Is there anything notable you'll be watching for from Volker in regards to those text messages? I think with Volker, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how Gordon Sondland, and I'm sure we'll talk about him shortly, how his testimony has been somewhat uneven. There have been things that have apparently been omitted. Some witnesses speaking in different ways about certain meetings they were all involved in. Kurt Volker has somewhat of an issue on that front. Part of that could be because he was simply the first person to be deposed. Uh, He was, of course, resigned his role as special envoy to Ukraine, came right back and, and testified immediately. And since then, we've seen a lot of things come to light. So I think he's going to have to reconcile some of the things in his testimony. I think the big thing from this hearing, and this hearing, of course, is Kurt Volker and Tim Morrison, I think we're going to see Republicans, especially in this hearing, try to get some really good sound bites out of these two because they might be willing to say, oh, there was nothing wrong with this in a way other witnesses aren't willing to go that far. So I think this is really a key hearing, especially for Republicans. And then you're also going to see Democrats try and poke holes in what Kurt Volker has said. Now, Morrison, he's in his earlier testimony, tied Trump pretty closely to Gordon Sondland, or at least highlighted specific occasions in which they spoke to each other. So that's a little bit different than what the president has said, which is that he doesn't know Gordon Sondland very well. So can you speak a little bit to what connection Morrison testified existed between Trump and Sondland? Yeah, you're exactly right. That's the key with Tim Morrison is is establishing that connection, how uh, Trump might have been using Gordon Sondland to spearhead these efforts. Tim Morrison, of course, was the aide that Bill Taylor first alluded to in his testimony and said, Morrison was my source for hearing about what Gordon Sondland had communicated to the Ukrainians about the quid pro quos. And so Tim Morrison basically testified and confirmed Taylor's testimony in substance and with a couple minor exceptions that really didn't matter to the quid pro quos. But then he also said that he wasn't quite as concerned about these things as as Bill Taylor was and said that he didn't think there was anything illegal. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Morrison approaches this because he's obviously got uh, a very intimate knowledge of some key, very sensitive 
sections, uh, events in this whole timeline. But he's not somebody who seems like he's decided that this is all problematic and maybe even illegal. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. All right. And that is all just Tuesday, just (laughs) one day of this week. So let's move on to Wednesday. Three people are scheduled for that day. Pentagon official for Ukraine and Russia, Laura Cooper, State Department official David Hale, and perhaps the most anticipated testimony of all this week, EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland. I want to focus on Sondland because, as we've said throughout this conversation, it feels like he has the potential to really make the most news. What do you expect from Gordon Sondland's testimony? Gordon Sondland is somebody who Republicans feel like is still on President Trump's side, and they'll want to make sure that continues to be the case. But he's also someone who Democrats have to look at as kind of a wounded animal in this whole thing. There have been all kinds of questions about his testimony. He had to clarify his testimony already once when it was revealed by other witnesses that there was this July 10th meeting where there was this big blow up between him and John Bolton. He hadn't mentioned that at all, basically, in his previous testimony. So he had to clarify that. Uh, Since then, we've seen another witness testify to the fact that there was a July 26th phone call between Sondland and President Trump, which Gordon Sondland also had not mentioned in his previous testimony on that call, according to David Holmes, who was with him and could overhear the conversation. He said that Gordon Sondland was talking to the president about Ukraine doing these investigations. So given those two things and given this idea that he was pushing for investigations but didn't know they involved the Biden somehow even though that had been reported way back in May that this was what Rudy Giuliani was pushing for. Uh, I think given those three things, Gordon Sondland's testimony is really kind of a, a big unknown, but also something that could really go strongly in one direction or another for either Republicans or Democrats. That's going to be maybe the most important hearing that we see this week. And is it possible that it will also be the hearing that shows the most discrepancy from between the closed-door hearing and the public testimony? Yeah, for for the basic reason that Gordon Sondland's initial testimony has has so much been called into question, they're going to be drilling into every single aspect of those discrepancies, and and Democrats especially are going to try and get him, you know, knock him off his game and basically get him to concede to things that he has been very cautious uh, to avoid confirming in his previous testimony. All right. Before we move on to Thursday's hearings, I do want to ask about the State Department official David Hale. Hale was sought as a witness by the Republican committee members. Can you explain why? Why do Republicans see him as significant to the inquiry? Hale is, unlike some of these other witnesses, is not somebody who is detailed to some of these events. He is an actual, he's the number three ranking official in the State Department. So he is somebody who 
is a political appointee. He has a window into some of this stuff, but he is not necessarily a central witness. He has, in his previous deposition, basically defended the decision not to be more supportive of the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, basically arguing that there were very politically legitimate reasons for the State Department to not get involved in that because it would impact potentially the withholding of aid. And also there were a lot of sensitivities with the president here. Basically, his testimony was there were good reasons to avoid rocking the boat on this and, you know, saying the kinds of things that Marie Ivanovich thought should be said on her behalf. So I think if you're looking for somebody who's going to stand up for the State Department in these hearings, David Hale is probably the one uh, who could do it for Republicans. All right. We've got Tuesday and Wednesday down. Let's move on to Thursday. Thursday, there's only one hearing and so far. <laughs> and that hearing is with Fiona Hill, who's the former National Security Council Russia advisor. It's my understanding that Hill's important because in her earlier closed-door testimony, she had a lot to say about the role of Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, in all of this. What did we learn from her previous testimony? Well, there's a reason that Fiona Hill is, at least right now, the only witness that we're going to be on, see on Thursday, which also might be the last day of, of these impeachment inquiry hearings. And that's because in her testimony, as you noted, she went further than a lot of other people in talking in narrative terms about kind of the corruption of U.S. foreign policy, about how this was actually having an impact on U.S. foreign policy goals outside of just this looking bad. So I think Democrats see in her previous deposition somebody who could maybe tie together all these disparate parts of these depositions and hearings and can do so in a compelling way from somebody who is authoritative and very much part of the conservative foreign policy establishment. I have a hard time believing she would be alone on what could be the last day if one, Democrats didn't make that calculation, and two, if she wasn't entirely comfortable being that person in this inquiry, because that's a huge responsibility for somebody to take on to be alone at that witness table when you're not Gordon Sondland, who's alone for very different reasons. But she's alone and she is going to be crafting a narrative that Democrats hope could be very helpful for them. So I think that's going to be a, a very interesting day for everybody involved. Is there a specific moment that Americans should watch for on that day from that hearing? The central thing that tied together Fiona Hill's deposition was that she talked about what she called a nightmare scenario in which private interests were being put ahead of U.S. foreign policy. We're still waiting to see whether the person who was her boss in the National Security Council, John Bolton, will ever testify in the inquiry or in a Senate trial potentially because he's going through a court case right now. But if you're looking for somebody who if he if he doesn't ever testify, if you're looking for somebody who could be kind of an analog for John Bolton in all of this, that could be Fiona Hill. And I think that depending on what we see Thursday, that could be maybe the, the big takeaway is she's really kind of giving voice to the things that these committee members would like to see coming from John Bolton himself and providing a pretty authoritative version relative to what Bolton could do. All right. So just to summarize, we've got five hearings with eight people over two and a half days. Why? Why are the Democrats not stretching this out or allowing more time? I think there is a real desire to make sure this doesn't get dragged out so long in a way that people lose focus and just start tuning it out. Uh, these are complex issues of foreign policy and diplomacy, which 
many people, including many reporters who are now covering the story, were not familiar with. And so I think that Democrats recognize there is a, an interest in keeping this compact. At the same time, once this moves out of the House, once they draft the impeachment articles, once they presumably will impeach the president, which I think most people think is going to happen, this moves to the Senate where Republicans are in charge. So they no longer have control of how this is going to be handled. Chief Justice John Roberts will obviously have a say on, on certain aspects of that. But you know, Republicans who are in control of the Senate can basically set the schedule. And at that point, Democrats don't have any guarantee that they are going to have a favorable procedural setup in a way they do right now. So we may see this go a little bit longer than they wanted to, but right now they're trying to keep it, you know, wrap this up by Thanksgiving, hopefully have the impeachment wrapped up by Christmas, and then we have the Senate trial in the new year. At least that's the operating theory right now. As we've seen before, though, this has gotten drawn out quite a bit more than I think people expected from the beginning. Well, then at the end of this jam-packed week, what are Democrats hoping to see? What will mark a success for them? I think the big question is whether they're going to get more out of Gordon Sondland because they clearly think that he has uh, more information than he's been willing to share previously. That's the big question. And I think that's a question to a slightly lesser extent with Kurt Volker. And then the next big question is whether somebody like Fiona Hill and maybe Alexander Vindman on Tuesday can paint the picture of a foreign policy that's basically been hijacked by personal interests, because that is the underlying narrative of their impeachment case, which is that this is an abuse of power and that everybody kind of understood what was going on and that it was all bad. What they can get out of Vindman and especially Hill is confirmation that this isn't just well, somebody did something a little bit wrong, but actually it has consequences. And a lot of people recognized in real time that this was very bad. And what about for Republicans? How will they assess this week? So last week, Republicans, their big focus was these are all secondhand witnesses. These are not necessarily people who were in on the meetings, who were actually knew about the quid pro quo. They were all passing along something they heard from somebody else. This week, they can't make that argument anymore because Vindman was on the call Williams was on the call. Tim Morrison was on the call. Gordon Sondland was a point person. He was one of the three amigos. Uh, Fiona Hill was in the meeting on July 10th. That argument is out the window. It is up to Republicans this week to go beyond kind of the process stuff and, and start to chip away at the narrative that, one, this was connected to President Trump in some way, that he was actually aware of quid pro quos, and two, that this is really all that bad to begin with. I don't know exactly how they're going to do it because that hasn't been their strategy in the past. They've been focused on other things like process, but they need to come up with something to kind of arrest the momentum created by some of these witnesses, which have all been to various degrees pointing the direction of this is very bad and this is problematic. And lots of people knew that at the time. Then my final question to you is about how Americans at home are, are seeing all of this. Based on the polling we've seen so far, do you expect much to change in the mind of the American voter by the end of this week? I think this week could change more than last week did, just because of the volume of witnesses and because of the witnesses' proximity to the key events. I think, though, that what basically happened after the inquiry was launched was that there were a bunch of people that didn't like President Trump but weren't necessarily on board with impeachment. Suddenly, they were on board with impeachment. That's why we saw the jump from you know, 35 40% supporting impeachment to 50% or slightly more. Getting it up to you know, 55 60% means getting people who maybe are more Republican-leading to start 
and support impeachment. I think that's a really tough thing, regardless of what the evidence is this week. But even just moving this thing a few points could carry significant electoral benefits for Democrats, because right now the president's reelection math is already very difficult. So even if it's 55 percent of the country is in support of impeachment, if this just kind of plants another seed of doubt in people's minds, swing voters' minds, that there's something amiss in the White House, that could be all it really need, all the Democrats really need out of these hearings. And I think that strategically speaking, they know the president's probably not going to get removed from office. This is ultimately about convincing the American people. And, you know, even a movement of a few points could really have the kind of impact that they would really want out of this whole process. All right, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? The Washington Post and MSNBC are hosting a Democratic primary debate this Wednesday night, November 20th at 9 p.m. For coverage of the debate in audio, listen to The Washington Post's daily news podcast, Post Reports. Post Reports will also feature daily coverage of this week's hearings in your podcast feeds by 5 p.m. each day. And we'll be back to wrap it all up here on Can He Do That? at the end of the week. Thanks for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the splendid Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.